Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 5. I have undone it. As you'll remember, last week we looked at the beginning of Alexander's Persian campaign, covering the crossing of the Hellespont and the Battle of the River Granicus, and the Siege of Miletus. This week, we will continue Alexander's campaign through Asia. Right, where were we? After capturing Miletus, Alexander had disbanded his fleet. He did this as he knew he wouldn't be able to defeat the Persian navy in a naval battle, and he had already crossed into Asia. He instead pursued a policy of defeating the Persian navy from the land, by capturing all the ports along the Mediterranean. Alexander thus moved away from Miletus with his army along the coast into Caria, the major city of which was Harlicanassus. Caria had previously been ruled by Queen Ada, who had been usurped by her brother Pixadarus, who you'll remember from episode 2, tried to arrange a marriage between his eldest daughter and Alexander's half-brother, Arihadus, and later, Alexander. Pixadarus had died in 335 BC, and Darius appointed Oronotabates, the stepson of Pixadarus, as governor of Caria. Ada was currently hiding in the city of Ilinda. Memnon, who you'll remember from episode 4, had retreated to Harlicanassus after his defeat at the Granicus, and had been appointed controller of Lower Asia and commander of the fleet. Memnon and Orontobates were preparing the defence of Harlicanassus when Alexander arrived in mid-334 BC. Alexander set up camp half a mile away from the city, preparing for a long siege. In the first few days, he made a few attempts against the city, and then made a night attack against one of the surrounding towns, Mindus, as this would help him take Halicarnassus, as locals said they would surrender to him. However, they did not surrender. Alexander tried taking Mindus anyway, even though he was not prepared for a siege, ordering his troops to begin sapping operations. For those of you who don't know, sapping is digging a tunnel under a wall, so that the wall collapses. The Macedonians managed to destroy one fort, but the town was aided by reinforcements from Halicarnassus, and held out. Alexander turned back to Halicarnassus. In preparation for the siege, the Halicarnassans had dug a trench around the city, so that the Macedonians couldn't move their siege engines up to the walls. So Alexander filled the trench, which was 45 feet wide and 23 feet deep, that's about 14 metres wide, and 7 metres deep for those of you who prefer metric measurements. The Halicarnassans tried setting the siege works on fire, but the Macedonians fended them off. A few more days later, a pair of soldiers were drinking. They soon started a competition, eventually deciding, seeing as how they were both, in the words of Arian, stout fellows, there would be nothing better than for them both to try and take the city single-handedly. A few guards from the city saw these stout fellows and went to kill them, but they were killed by Macedonians hurling missiles at them. 
The Harlequinassans outnumbered the Macedonians, so more Macedonians went to help out the pair, and reinforcements from the city helped the Harlequinassans. The Macedonians succeeded in fending the Harlequinassans off, and launched an attack on the city. As the walls were, at the moment, inadequately defended, the Macedonians destroyed several towers and made a breach in the wall, but they were unable to take the city due to their small numbers. The Harlequinassans built a crescent-shaped brick wall in the breach. Deciding that this was a weak point, Alexander focused his attacks on this point. Alexander launched an attack the next day, and the Harlequinassans again tried setting the siege towers on fire, but the Macedonians repulsed them. After waiting a few days, Alexander renewed his attack on the wall, and once again the defenders went out with flaming bands to set fire to the siege engines in full force, but the Macedonians once again fought back. This was disastrous for the Harlequinassans. A thousand were killed in the retreat. As they fled, they overwhelmed the city's infrastructure, collapsing a bridge. Alexander called off the assault to save the city. Orontobates and Memnon had a meeting. They realised the city was going to fall, no question. There was a breach in the wall, and they had suffered heavy losses. So, around midnight, they decided to set fire to the city, and fled to the Arcanese, a nearby island stronghold, and the high ground of the city, known as Salmakis. Alexander sent troops out to save the city. Daylight showed that Persian forces had fled to the Arcanese and Salmakis, but Alexander decided not to besiege these fortifications. He already had the city, so what was the point? It would take too much time for too little gain. He left Ptolemy, future King of Egypt Ptolemy, with 3,000 troops and 200 cavalry to secure the remaining strongholds. Alexander then found Queen Ada in Alinda and made her governor of Caria. Alexander had a very unusual relationship with Queen Ada. It was very affectionate. Ada realised that Alexander had a sweet tooth, so she used to send him delicacies. Alexander also adopted Alexander, which was a very clever move for Alexander, as it meant that he would gain control of Caria upon the death of Ada. Alexander used to call Ada mother. This leads some to question the relationship between Alexander and his mother, considering this to be Alexander divorcing his mother. And, as we shall soon see, he will denounce his father too. Alexander rewarded his troops by allowing those who had recently married to return to their wives over the winter of 334-333 BC. This act made him loved by the native troops. As well as this, Alexander sent one of his senior commanders, Cleander, back to the Peloponnese to recruit troops, and sent Parmenio to Sardis, where he could then enter Phrygia, or central Anatolia, while he himself advanced along the coast into Lycia and Pamphylia, which, if you're looking at a map, is just along the coast from the southwest corner of Turkey. After capturing the region, Alexander learned of a plot against his life, organised by, wait for it, an Alexander. Of course. I'll call this Alexander Alexandros, 
to differentiate. Apparently, Alexandros was already under suspicion for murdering Philip, but Alexander pardoned Alexandros as Alexandros supported Alexander early on. Alexandros was given numerous appointments and was eventually made commander of the Thessalian cavalry. A Macedonian deserter, who we'll hear more of later, Amintus, told Darius that Alexandros would, um, uh, how to say this eloquently, whack Alexander. Darius, in turn, sent an assistance to the region. The stated reason was to speak to the local governor, but he was really going to meet with Alexandros, saying that if Alexandros killed Alexander, he would receive 1,000 talents and the throne of Macedonia. But he was caught by Parmenio. This explained an omen during the siege of Halicarnassus, which Aristander said portended the treachery of a friend. Alexander sent a message to Parmenio, who then arrested Alexandros. Alexander continued his advance through the region, including one very notable anecdote. Apparently, while walking along the coast, Alexander decided to go along the beach for a while. The area was reportedly impassable, as the tide was in, but then the tide suddenly went out, and Alexander was able to pass. Alexander never mentions this anecdote, which you'd think he would do, hinting that the story never happened. But Arian tries to explain, saying that it was just a change in wind direction which caused this. It's quite possible that something reasonable like this happened, allowing him to take a shortcut, which was then embellished until it turned into a miracle, a process probably started by Alexander's official historian, Callisthenes with Alexander's approval. Alexander carried along the coast, until he conquered the town of Side. He then turned back, as there were no more major ports along the coast. Heading north, Alexander failed to take the town of Cylon, partly because it would require a siege, and partly because Aspendus, another city he had conquered, was in revolt. After putting this down, Alexander headed north into central Turkey, eventually reaching the city of Gordium in early to mid-333 BC. Firstly, to deal with logistics. Gordium saw the reunifying of Alexander's army. Parmenia returned with his forces, the recently married troops came back, along with reinforcements collected by Cleander. Now, Alexander's stay at Gordium, despite my prioritising, is not famous for logistical reasons. There is a rather famous story. Right. Are you all sitting comfortably? Yes. Good. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there lived a man called Gordius. Gordius was ploughing his field, when an eagle landed on the yoke of the wagon and stayed there until the oxen pulling the wagon were set loose at the end of the day. Gordius was troubled by this, and so went to a nearby town, which was famous as its citizens were skilled in the arts of divination. At the town he found a girl, who told him to go back home and make a sacrifice to Zeus the king. The girl went back with him and showed him how to make the sacrifices. They fell in love, got married, and had a son called Midas. Many years later, when Midas had grown up into a fine and handsome man, 
there was trouble in Phrygia. An oracle told them that a wagon would bring an end to their quarrels. One day, Midas and his father and mother came to their meeting place, and they decided that this was the fulfilment of the prophecy. They made Midas king, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, apart from that Midas gained the power to turn everything he touched into gold, turning his daughter into a golden statue, lost this power, lost a musical contest with Apollo, and ended up turning his ears into those of a donkey's. There is another version of Midas's origin, but I'm not going into that. Anyway, the wagon ended up in Gordium, and the knot tying the shaft of the wagon to the yoke was incredibly complicated. It was very large, with the ends hidden in the middle of the knot. It was said that the man who undid the knot would become the lord of all Asia, meaning the Persian Empire. This was a bit of a problem for Alexander. Obviously, he couldn't leave without untying the knots. What kind of a message would that send? He would need the backing of the knots for PR reasons. So, how to undo it? There are two versions. The boring version, offered by Aristobulus, which goes that he merely pulled out the pin, a wooden peg going through the shaft, which held the knot together. By removing the pin, he could simply remove the yoke from the shaft. Then there is the other version, which says Alexander pulled out his sword and sliced the knot, proclaiming, I have undone it. That night, there was thunder, which, according to Arian, is obviously a sign from heaven. We'll leave Alexander for a moment to take a look at the wider war. Although Alexander's personal campaign is a very important part of his campaigns, there were other parts to it which cannot be dismissed. While Alexander and his generals focused on capturing Asia Minor, there was also an ongoing campaign in the Greek islands. While Alexander was marching along the southern coast, Memnon had left Halicarnassus and had headed to the Aegean, with the Persian navy, which had come from Egypt, Cyprus, and Phoenicia. This fleet, you'll remember from episode 4, was just too late to prevent Miletus from falling to Alexander. Memnon wanted to prevent Alexander from advancing further east. There were two ways of doing this. One, cutting off Alexander's supplies, and two, causing unrest in Greece. Memnon attempted both. Memnon made contact with Aegis, the king of Sparta. Together, they planned an attack on Greece and Macedonia, which would be aided by an uprising of several Greek cities. This would lead to the taking of the Hellespont, which would cut off Alexander's supplies. The loss of his supplies and the threat to Greece and Macedonia would force Alexander to turn back, protecting Asia. It was a very good plan. Memnon took the island of Chios, and after this advanced to Lesbos, and took all of the towns on the island, apart from Mytilene, which refused to turn over to Persia. So Memnon put the town under siege. It was while preparing for the siege in August 333 BC that Memnon died, age 47, for unknown reasons, probably a fever. It is not an understatement when Arian says, 
His death was the most serious setback which Persia received during this period of the war. Memnon announced his successor, pending approval from Darius, would be his nephew, Pharnabasis. Pharnabasis captured Mytilene and thus controlled all of Lesbos. The next island was Tenedus, which would give Pharnabasis control of the Hellespont. Antipater then ordered that warships be collected from Euboea and the Peloponnese to defend Greece from a Persian attack by sea. This brings us up to date in this theatre of the war. So, we'll rejoin Alexander now, and come back to Pharnabasis at some point in the future. Once Alexander learned of the death of Memnon, he felt much more comfortable advancing into the interior of the Persian Empire, and so he left Gordium heading east. Two days after untying the knot, he set out for Ankara in Galatia. After taking Ankara, he headed into Cappadocia, which is eastern Turkey. After taking the region, he headed south, where he reached the Sicilian Gates. To briefly explain the term, Sicilian Gates, it refers to a pass through the mountains, which would be one of the few entrances, if not the only entrance, to a region. As you can work out, the Sicilian Gates is a pass into Sicilia, the region along the southern coast of Turkey. The gates were heavily defended, so Alexander left Parmenio behind with the heavy infantry, while he took the lighter troops and the cavalry to attack the gates under the cover of night. This part of the plan didn't work, as the Persians saw him, but it can still be considered a success as the Persians fled to Darius once they realised Alexander was going to attack them. Alexander made his way to Tarsus a city in Sicilia, and Alexander fell sick. According to the sources, this was either from exhaustion or from swimming in the river Kindus, which has ice-cold water. He had a high fever and sleepless nights. All but one of his doctors feared for his life. Most refused to treat him, understanding that if they failed, they would be blamed for his death. Despite this, one doctor, Philip of Acanardia, who was a good soldier as well as a doctor, decided he couldn't live with himself abandoning Alexander, so he gave him a laxative. While Philip was preparing the medicine, Alexander received a note from Parmenio. It said, Beware of Philip. I am informed that he has been bribed by Darius to poison you. When Philip came back with the medicine, Alexander handed Philip the note, and drank the medicine while Philip was reading. Philip simply told Alexander to follow his instructions, and he would recover. This is notable for several reasons. Firstly, as the sources are quick to point out, it shows Alexander in a good light. He is very trusting in the story, he refuses to suspect treachery, and is unmoved by the possibility of death. These are very admirable character traits, but the story also contains a darker side. After the death of Parmenio, which I won't get into now, there was some heavy character assassination. This story shows Alexander ignoring Parmenio's bad and incorrect advice, showing Parmenio in a negative light. We've seen this before, 
in Arian and Plutarch's account of the Battle of the River Granicus, and just before the Siege of Miletus. So, bear in mind that Parmenio was probably much more competent than sections of the sources say he was. So, now we've brought Alexander to Tarsus, let's bring the situation up to date in Persia, and formally introduce Alexander's foe, Darius, King of Kings. Codomanus was born into the Persian royal family in 338 BC. He was the grandson of the then ruling king, Artaxerxes II. Artaxerxes II was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes III, who reigned from 358 BC to 338 BC, and spent most of his reign putting down revolts. Once he had crushed all of them in 343 BC, it was him who began strengthening Persian power in Ionia and in the Aegean. Isocrates, an Athenian statesman, called for a crusade against the barbarians, but Greece was too weak to do anything about it, and was about to be crushed by Philip II of Macedonia, and his young son, Alexander. By 338, it was clear Philip was planning an invasion, but Artaxerxes was killed before he could do anything to stop him. Artaxerxes was killed by one of his former generals, Bagoas, who had become vizier, or chief minister, to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes III was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes IV Arces, who I'll call Arces, so we don't confuse him with his father. No one expected Arces to succeed Artaxerxes, as he was Artaxerxes' youngest son. But when Bagoas killed Artaxerxes, he killed most of his family too. Arces ruled from 338 BC to 336, where he was nothing more than a puppet king, being controlled by Bagoas. But Arces, tired of this, and conspired to kill his puppet master. However, Bagoas discovered the plot, and poisoned Arces, and raised a cousin of Arces's to the throne, Codemanus. Codemanus had distinguished himself in combat, and was serving as a royal courier. When he ascended to the throne, he took the regnal name, Darius. Darius was just as unwilling to be controlled as Arces, and Bagoas tried to poison Darius. But Darius discovered the plot, and refused to drink the poison, forcing Bagoas to drink it, killing the troublesome minister. But before we finish with Bagoas, I'll quickly mention that it was supposedly Bagoas who killed Alexander's father, Philip. Anyway, back to Darius. You would think that as the most powerful man in the world, Darius would have a good life, having just removed this troubling minister. The future for Persia would be bright. If you did think this, you would be mistaken. Bagoas was a very good general and a skilled administrator. Darius was neither. He was not a great leader. He had no experience of governing a large empire, and didn't possess the talents and qualities that the empire needed. To make matters worse, it was not a period of peace which would allow Darius to grow into the job. It was a very turbulent period for Persia. Those revolts I mentioned Artaxerxes III was putting down. They were by no means minor. 
In 338 BC, Egypt had rebelled and remained independent for 40 years. When he failed to retake it in 351 BC, the whole Western Empire burst into revolt. For the last hundred years, Persian influence in the east was fading, as the border fell back from the Indus. That Alexander invaded in 334 was a huge problem for Darius, but this ignores the bigger problem. How and why was Alexander allowed to invade Persia in the first place? They had known about the invasion for years. If the empire was any sound state of affairs, you would expect there would be a force preventing him from crossing or at least a force greater than the one controlled by Memnon, which was outnumbered by Alexander possibly three to one. Darius didn't hurry to face Alexander, not thinking that Alexander intended to conquer the world, and that his satraps could deal with it. It is understandable for Darius not to think that Alexander's motives were to conquer the whole world, but you should never underestimate your enemy. Needless to say, things were not perfect in the Persian Empire. Darius was not doing nothing, though. While Alexander was advancing through Asia Minor, Darius was advancing through Mesopotamia. He left Susa with a force supposedly 600,000 strong, but this is surely an overestimate. Modern estimates are around 100,000, including 11,000 cavalry, 10,000 Persian immortals, and 10,000 Greek mercenaries. It was in late 333 BC that Darius was waiting for Alexander in the nearby plains. And this is where we'll leave him for this episode. Join us next time, as we focus on the first battle between Alexander and Darius. The Battle of Isis. Remember, you can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com where you can find things such as maps for the episode so you can understand where things are taking place and other downloadable history-based things for your enjoyment. You can like the podcast on Facebook at the History of Podcast Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod feel free to drop me an email at the history of podcast at gmail.com a new thing that i'd like to mention this week i'll hope you'll excuse me for doing it is it's a quick advertisement as some of you may know on the website you can find a link to amazon.com where you can buy wonderful things if you're going to buy anything off Amazon, it won't cost you anything extra to go via the website, and I'll get a small cut of whatever you spend. It would be a really good way of helping me out. I'm going to do a recommendation each episode, though. Things which I like and find interesting, and think that you'll like and find interesting, too. This episode, I'm going to recommend the 2004 film, Alexander starring Colin Farrell and Angelina Jolie, based partly on a book written by Robin Lane Fox, an excellent historian. The film is a very entertaining look at Alexander's life, which I enjoyed, and it contains, very briefly, Brian Blessed, who has one of the best voices in the world. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the programme.